So it's uh, Yehuda Geber back with another cool story from our glorious past. Um, Rabbi Ruchim Levavitz, the Mirror Mashgiach, is known to history as the famous and legendary Mashgiach of the Mir Yeshiva in Poland. And that's how he's always remembered. But um, really in the the life of Rabbi Ruchim, he um, spent quite a bit of time in other places. And uh, the famous 12 years that he was in the Mir Yeshiva the second time, he was in the Mir Yeshiva for two tenures, which we'll get to, was from 1924 till he passed away on Chai Sivan Tafresh Tzadivah of 1936. But there's quite a few wanderings that he did before that, and each one is an interesting story in itself, so we'll try to touch on a few of the places that he went to before he ended up in his last 12 years what's known as the golden age of the pre-war Mir Yeshiva. Um, he's born in 1875. When he's 16, he comes to Slabatka. He becomes a Talmud of the altar of Slabatka, which is a fairly new Yeshiva at the time, and he becomes one of the prized Talmidim of the altar of Slabatka. Um, eventually, after six years in Slabatka, he's about 22 years old, he goes to Kelm, and that changes his life. He writes about it in uh, several places. Interestingly enough, it's one of the few places that he goes into an autobiog- autobiographical tangent in the middle of his Musser, Shmuz, Chumashir, where he talks about his days in Kelm and his relationship that he had with the altar of Kelm, despite the fact that he was there only a, less than a year um, together with the altar of Kelm. But he stays in Kelm for quite a few years, so he's, he grows up, again, in a, the city of Luban, which is not far from Minsk. Luban is also the same town that not only produced Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, it produced Rabbi David Pavarsky, who eventually became his close Talmud. And it was also a place where Maisha Feinstein was a Rav. So it's a tiny little shtetl near Minsk, and it has some pretty, pretty big people associated with it. And he learns in Slabatka. And then he goes to Kelm. He marries a girl from Uzvant, a small little shtetl in Lithuania. And the condition of his marriage is that he remains in Kelm as a porush, as someone who's there almost entirely throughout the year and only comes home um, for Yamim Tevim, for special occasions. And they agree, and he's going to do that for eight years. So he spends eight years after he's married live in Kelm. This is already after the altar of Kelm passes on. And that's where he grows, that's where he connects to, and he remains throughout his life one of the most famous and, and uh, prides of, of the Kelm Talmud Torah. Um, the later Rosh Hashiva of Kelm, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Breide, the altar of Kelm's son-in-law, he, he says, if my father-in-law, the altar of Kelm, would be able to see the product of Rabbi Rucham, he would say the whole Kelm Talmud Torah was worth it just to see this product. At the end of the eight years, he goes back to Uzvant, where he tries to help his wife running the store that, that supported the family. So he actually tries to become uh, working in the store, but that's not for him. His wife sees the potential that he has, and he gets hired by the Radin Yeshiva. This is his first position to become the Mashgiach. The Radin Yeshiva had recently, three years earlier, in 1904, taken in a Shrup to be the Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Naftali Shrub and Rabbi Rucham were friends from Kelm. And when they were together in Kelm, they had a dream. And their dream together, they learned together, they were Harusas, they were very close friends. 
and they had a dream that they would run a yeshiva together and build it up in their educational philosophy, in the Kelm, the spirit of Kelm, in the Musar of Kelm, and they planned on doing it in the Radin Yeshiva. And the Rabbi Naftali is the Rosh Yeshiva there, and Rabbi Rucham becomes the Mashkiach. Of course, it's the Chavetz Chaim's Yeshiva. And Rabbi Rucham, as famously as he's remembered, is a charismatic, dynamic personality, very, very magnetic. People love him, people are drawn to him, and his Shmuzin are very popular. And there were some people in the yeshiva who felt that he was becoming too big and he's going to become a threat to the Chafetz Chaim, who was the spirit, the life behind the yeshiva scenes, of course. And of course, that was the furthest thing from Abiruchim's mind. He was in awe of the Chafetz Chaim. He's one of the only uh, people in that he, throughout his Shmuzin and Chumash Shiurim, he, he, literally quotes the Chavetz Chaim and says, says stories about the Chavetz Chaim tens and tens of times. There's almost no other contemporary that he, he speaks about with such reverence and awe and as a role model for people to aspire to and learn from. So, of course, that was the furthest thing from his mind. But he's not the type of person to insist on his position and to stay there when he feels that he's unwanted. So after only three years, he leaves the Rad and Yeshiva. Now think about that for a second. This was his dream. He was uh, to be with Rabbi Naftali to build a yeshiva together. And he gives it all up because he doesn't want anyone to think that he's out there to uh, be out popular, out, out, out be uh, more popular than the Chavetz Chaim. So he leaves. Um, his Rebbeim in Kelm, Rabbi Nachum Velvel Ziv, the altar of Kelm's son, Rabbi Tzirish Breida, they encourage him to take a position in the Mir Yeshiva. The Mir Yeshiva had also only recently become a Musser style yeshiva, similar to Radin. And they felt that this was an opportune time to bring in someone like Rabbi Rocham, and he becomes the Mashkiach in the Mir in 1910. So this is his first tenure in the Mir. And he starts to build up the Mir. He's not the first Mashkiach, but he was the first long-term Mashkiach. And he stays there for several years. World War I breaks out. The Mir gets exiled. They first stop in Minsk, and then in Vilna, Minsk. And they end up in the Ukraine, in Poltava. And uh, in Throughout all these years, both his years in Raden and his years in the Mir, and now in his years in exile, his family is still in Uzvant. They're still there. And uh, he's still living apart from his family for most of the year, and he goes back to visit them occasionally. And here, he's cut off from them from the war. If we think about World War I for a second, on the Eastern Front, the Russian Tsar is still in control of most of the Ukraine, especially the Eastern Ukraine where Poltava is, and Uzvant is in Lithuania, the German army of the Kaiser had already conquered Lithuania. So he's actually on the wrong side of the border, and he wants to go visit his family. He hasn't seen them in quite a bit of time. So he makes this very treacherous uh, route from Poltava back to um, Uzvant. Sometime during this exile, either when he was in the Ukraine or when they were still on their way there, he meets the altar of Navardic, uh, Rabbi Yosef Yezel Horowitz, who is busy opening Navardic yeshiva branches throughout Russia, even during World War I. And he says to Rabbi Rucham, I this year I built, opened over 20 yeshivas. How many did you open? He says, that's fascinating that you were able to open 20 yeshivas in one year. I'm a mashgiach in the Mir Yeshiva for several years, and I have not succeeded yet in building one yeshiva. And that's the difference in the educational philosophy of Navardic, which was to spread it as much as possible. And Rabbi Rucham, who molded each and every individual who cared after each and every 
Talmud of his, like a father was to a son, building them according to their specific needs. And that's what he was trying to express to the altar of Navardic. So he comes back to Uzvant, he somehow makes it across the lines, he ends up in Uzvant, but now he can't cross again. So he's stuck there. And he does not return to Yeshiva, to the Mir Yeshiva, for several years until 1924. So he uh, is now in Lithuania. He's not going to just sit around in Lithuania doing nothing. And he serves as a short stint in the Panovich Yeshiva later on after World War I, when the Panovich Rav first opens the Panovich Yeshiva. It's not clear what he did there and how big the yeshiva was. This is really in the early years of the Panevizhirov's tenure in the yeshiva. He spends about a year and a half as the Meshgiach in the Slabatki yeshiva. Kind of in between, before the old Slabatki yeshiva comes back from its exile, or it's a local yeshiva taken from Bachram, who had not been exiled to the Ukraine. They stayed around the Lithuania area some sort of situation where he built up a yeshiva in Slabatka um, under the end of the war, the post-war chaos, and he's a mashkiach in Slabatka, which is an interesting in itself, how he ends up there in his old alma mater, but it's not really his old alma mater because he's building up a new yeshiva in the post-war chaos and really uh, presenting it to the altar when he finally comes back from his exile. In addition... He goes back to his real old alma mater, to Kelm, and he becomes the mashgiach there, Reb Nachum Velvel Ziv, the altar of Kelm's son, who had run the Talmud Torah of Kelm, had already passed on. There was no one really at the head of the Talmud Torah of Kelm, and it was up to two senior Talmidim, students of the altar of Kelm, Rabbi Rucham Levavitz and Reb Ruvain Doiv Dessler, of Dessler's father, who, were, who was also... The circumstances of World War I had changed his position. He was no longer in Hummel. He had been exiled. He lost his money because of the revolution. Uh, everything was nationalized. The Bolsheviks, a whole story in itself. And he ends up in Lithuania again. Um, and he is in Kelm, in his old alma mater. And two of them are running them together. And an interesting dispute uh, arises between these two great people and close friends. How are we going to run the Talmud Torah of Kelm? Kelm was always an elite place, only the best, only the ones who are really, really able to work at the high standards of Kelm Musser, which is for another time to go and understand the intricacies of what was Kelm Aveda about. But the Kelm Talmud Torah never had more than 30 students. It was small, it was elite, it was for older people, very often married, and it was not for everyone. And the message of Kelm was not uh, able to be digested by everyone. It was very, very high standards of Musr, of Avaida, of how to apply the lessons of Kelm to the daily life. And it was a lot of practice and a lot of thought processes, and it wasn't simple at all. And the question was, do we try to keep that high elitist standard in the post-World War I era, where things have changed, the new generation might not be able to sustain that, might be able to, to work that way, and that was a dispute that arose. Rebruven Dave Dessler said, Kelm has to stay Kelm. A watered-down Kelm is simply not Kelm. And uh, if we lower the standard, then we might as well close the place because uh, that's not Kelm. That's not, that's not what it's supposed to be. And Rebruven said, no, we can try and bring the message of Kelm and the ideas and the ideals down and water them down and bring them to the masses of the yeshiva guys who are still coming to yeshiva. And they could not resolve this dispute so Rabbi Rucham, again, he leaves Kelm. He leaves his place and his position, and he's going to 
work it out on his own. And Rebuvin Doiv Dessler stays in Kelm for several years until the next generation takes over of Daniel Mashavitz or Gershon Miadnik until they're tragically murdered by the Nazis in 1941. Rabbi Rocha moves on, and eventually, in 1924, he comes back to the mirror, and that's the end of his wanderings. Interestingly enough, what he does in the mirror during the Golden Age of the Mir Yeshiva is exactly what he thought was the right thing to do in Kelm. He lives by his educational philosophy. He tries to bring the message of Kelm, bring it down to the 300, 400 students, including many from Western Europe and the United States, and tries to give those ideals over. So through his wanderings, he brings all that wealth that he had gained in his experiences and his wanderings from place to place and his separation from the Mir during the post-World War I era, and he brings it back with him. And now, when we see it in that context, we can understand why that last 12 years of his life is really and truly referred to as the golden age of the Mir Yeshiva. Hope you enjoyed. Um, this is again Yehuda Geber. Anyone who would like to participate in one of the tours we give in Europe, Jewish history, European Jewish history, in any of the countries, European Jewish history in Eretz Yisrael, you feel free to email me, ygebs, Y-G-E-B-S-S, at gmail.com. Enjoy.